We are going to be in Luke chapter 5. Luke chapter 5. Um, and before we begin, let's, let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that we can gather again around your word, and we pray that we would be greatly enriched and built up by it. We thank you so much for the evident work of, and the evident uh, work of your hand that is going on in Columbia, and we do pray that you'd continue to be building your church there and blessing the ministry of your word. It is so sweet to see the power of your word. We pray that we would also be encouraged to be faithful with your word in the little circles that we have been given here in Bakersfield as well. We pray now for your word that you would indeed enrich us in this way. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I've, um, I've always been one for a good fishing story. When, when you come from the land of Ten Thou, you kind of got to be one for a good fishing story. It's kind of like a state requirement. You can't get a driver's license unless you fish. But all my favorite fishing stories all have one thing in common. They never involve me. I, I kind of enjoy fishing experiences vicariously through other people. Other people are the ones always catching the big one before my eyes. I remember one morning, my family was uh, at a, a family camp. Every year we'd go up to this family camp, and it was by this beautiful lake in central Minnesota. And it was the, the, the day of the big fishing competition. And I was determined this year I was going to win the big fishing competition. I got up early in the morning before anybody else. I went down to the dock and I cast and I cast out into the water again and again and again. I must have been down there for two hours casting. And not a bite not a nibble, nothing. But I was determined, and I was patient, and I just kept casting. Fishing is this great scam, really. You always think, it might be this time, right? Well, anyway, just as a few people were gathering for breakfast uh, above me in the dining hall, a friend of mine uh, came down to where I was fishing, and he was talking to me for a little bit, and then he said, hey, could, could I try to cast? And of course, me being my friendly, sarcastic self is like, sure, Phil, I've been down here for two hours. You're, you're not going to catch a thing in this lake. There's nothing out here. Sure enough, to make a short story even shorter, first cast, bang, he catches the biggest muskie I have ever seen. I mean... I was considerably shorter then, but it sure seemed like the biggest muskie in the world. And it was off this same stupid dock that I had been fishing for two straight hours. It was right over there. Had I cast one more time, it would have been mine. I had tried so many different lures. I had tried so many different casts. By the way, it's not important to this story, but we're no longer friends. <laughs> yeah, fishing. Fishing takes determination. It takes skill. It takes patience. And it takes patience, right? And, and, and even with a lot of skill, 
even with a lot of patience, it's really hard. Sometimes you have some terrible days. Sometimes you catch nothing. Fishing isn't always easy. Tonight we have a fishing story. It's one of my favorite fishing stories. Uh, It's the story of the greatest fisherman who ever fished. It's in Luke 5. And I pray as we study this story together, it won't be just a vicarious experience for you, but this story will be about you this evening. Luke 5, we're going to divide it into four different parts. The titles of these parts will make no sense if I give them to you now, so we'll just work our way through. This is just to kind of help organize my thoughts, but uh, part number one in this greatest fishing story ever is, I've titled, The Jesus in the Crowd. The Jesus in the Crowd, and you see there in verse one of Luke chapter five, on one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesareth. This is one occasion in Luke's presentation of the person of Jesus, and Luke is doing something here. He is setting up, setting up who Jesus is and what Jesus is like as he is moving us towards the path of Jesus as Jesus moves towards Jerusalem to fulfill the plan of Jesus in Luke's gospel. But this section, uh, chapter 4, 14, all the way to chapter 9, verse 50, is primarily focused on the person and the character of Jesus. And Luke is earnest to draw some conclusions, to help us draw some conclusions when we get to chapter 9, verse 50, and Jesus sets his face for Jerusalem. Of course, Luke's gospel has a purpose. This is, this is my statement for his purpose. Luke was writing to show Jesus as God's perfect man for God's plan to save sinners. That's Luke's purpose. And he is setting up Jesus' purpose in setting up his character. Now, this major section in Luke's gospel that begins in 4.14 is, is striking to us because Luke intentionally moves an episode that occurs later on in Jesus' life all the way to the beginning of this section. It is this rejection scene in Nazareth in verse 16 and following. Jesus pulls this rejection scene forward because he wants to communicate something about how Jesus' person and character will be accepted. Luke, for the most part, is pretty chronological, and as I like to say to my students, Luke is chronological, until he isn't. So help that. Hopefully that helps you understand nothing. Uh, And we see here, there is an ominous note to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, And we also see here that Jesus kind of sets us up for what to expect in his ministry with this quote beginning in verse 18, taken from Isaiah 61, 1 and 2. Jesus says this in the synagogue, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set at liberty those who are oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now, in the events that follow throughout the rest of this chapter and beyond, we, we see these, this prediction of Jesus begin to take place. 
He is one of unmatched authority. He has the Spirit of the Lord. 431. We, we see, we see everybody is noticing it in his teaching. His authority is also showcased in his miracles. He is able to heal the sick. Verse 39. He is able to cast out demons. Verse 35 and 41. And as 440 says, he laid his hands on every one of them and he healed them. He healed them all. And these weren't partial healings. These weren't kind of healings. These were complete and total. And as a natural result of this, many great crowds begin to follow Jesus. They were coming from everywhere. And we see here in chapter 5, verse 1, that they are pressing in to hear the Word of God. And by the way, that's a very impressive statement, right? They are pressing in. But notice what Luke says. They are pressing in to hear the Word of God. His word was recognized as coming from God. His word was God's authoritative word. People didn't just see him as somebody who had a Bible in his hand, like we think of the word of God, but they saw him as God's active voice in their world. He had the words of God. He spoke the words of God. And as we know, he breathed out the words of God because he was God. His miraculous powers proved this, showcased this. This was the point of all Jesus' miracles to show that he had God's word. And this appears to be a very good thing, right? These crowds appear to be coming for very right reasons, and in some way they are. But we have reason to be suspicious. In Luke, being a part of the crowd isn't necessarily a good designation the crowd is always the people that are curious but never really responsive never really spiritually receptive matter of fact you see in luke 9 18 jesus asks his disciples who do the crowds say that i am and they have many different answers for him and then jesus turns to them of course in verse 20 and says but who do you say that i am as John 2.24 says, Jesus did not entrust himself to everyone because he knew what was in all men. Even in these early moments of ministry, he knew what was in all men. Also, right here in Luke 4.42, we actually have an indication given by Luke for why these crowds were coming to Jesus. Right? Verse 42 of chapter 4. And when it was day, he departed and went into a desolate place, and the people sought him and came to him and would have kept him from leaving them. But he said to them, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to other towns as well, for I was sent for this purpose. Notice, the more they experienced God's glory through the person of Jesus Christ, and the more miracles they saw, the more they wanted Jesus to stick around, the more they wanted to keep Jesus close. In other words, this was a very natural response. A very natural response to somebody who had such authority and impressive power. I want to keep this man close to me. But as we progress through Luke's Gospel, 
the more the crowds begin to see who Jesus is, the more people begin to see who Jesus is, the more their response will be divided. But here, at least in 5.1, they are pressing in on him. Strong word, it speaks of earnestness, eagerness, urgency. Matter of fact, in Luke 12, 1, there's another crowd scene, and these crowds are trampling on one another to get close to Jesus. There is a strange and suspicious uh, selfishness about this pressing in, I suspect. Matter of fact, in this opening verse, Jesus appears to me, at least, to be a little bit out of reach. He's distant. And here is where Luke takes a very interesting turn. And just so you know, a little bit of comment on Luke's style. He he likes to do this. He, He likes to present the person of Jesus by taking individuals out of a crowd and showcasing all of Jesus' glory through his interaction with those individuals. So Jesus, Jesus... Uh, You you could say it this way, individuals may feel like they're isolated and alone and lost in a crowd, but Jesus always seems to interact with individuals. Everywhere Jesus goes, he sees people and individuals, and he has compassion on them. He sees his disciples in the crowds. The crowds at this point are pressing in, though, so so fast that Jesus' ability to communicate is becoming hindered. So he jumps into a nearby boat. This water will, of course, provide a protective distance to him and will also help uh, carry his voice to more people. Verse 2, And he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Now, The way Luke presents it, this is a very random thing. Luke presents it as though Jesus is teaching and preaching and the crowds are coming in and he needs more space and he looks over there and sees a random boat on the shore and just hops into it. But of course it's not. Notice verse 3. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land. And he sat down and taught the people from the boat. The fishermen were out of their boats. They were washing their nets, which means they were probably just back after a night of fishing out in the lake. That random boat that Jesus just so happened to hop into belonged to Simon Peter. And if I'm reading this right, Simon is either in the crowd or maybe he's washing his net, but he's not in the boat, and Jesus calls him over to push out a little bit so Jesus can speak to the people. And now to, to kind of borrow a fishing-like sounding phrase, this opens up a huge can of worms. Why is Peter fishing? What is he doing here? Isn't he supposed to be one of Jesus' disciples? This is definitely not the first time Peter and Jesus have met. It's definitely not. You can't read the Gospels and come to the conclusion that this is the first time they have met. And it's not just been that they've been passing each other on the street and exchanging friendly nods. Uh, there have been legitimate interactions, and there's been serious calls to discipleship before this time. 
For example, uh, John 1, 35 through 42, presents probably the first meeting of Jesus with Peter. In that scene, Andrew, Peter's uh, brother, was a disciple of John the Baptist. He heard John's presentation of Jesus as the Lamb of God. And what did he do? He went and he followed Jesus. He stayed with him for a day. And then instantly he got his brother, Simon. He said, come, we have found the Christ who is called the Messiah. And he brought Peter to Jesus. And of course, this is where Simon gets his nickname, Cephas or Rock. And then in Mark 1 and Matthew 4, we see a Another call, it seems like it could be a parallel to Luke 5, but I'm not convinced by that. I see there's some differences, and there also seem to be differences in times and when that happened as well. So this could very well be the third time that Peter has interacted with Jesus. Luke 5 appears to present Peter as someone who is already considering himself a follower, a disciple of Jesus. Matter of fact, I don't even think Luke is ashamed of this point. I think Luke wants us to know that. I think Luke intentionally lays out his gospel because he wants us to see that this Peter already knew who Jesus was. Matter of fact, we've already seen, if you've been reading through Luke, in 4, 38 through 40, that Jesus has already interacted with Peter, in a, in a highly familiar, highly personal manner, he has healed his mother-in-law after he came to Peter's house to stay with him. He knew Peter. He's already stayed and healed Peter. So then, why is Peter back to sea, so to speak? What is Peter doing here? Why is Peter fishing? Well, the same reason he always goes back to fishing. He went back to fishing after Jesus died and rose again. In John 21 we see this, right? Peter is prone to wander. Peter is prone to drift. Peter is prone to get lost in the crowd. Peter is prone to wander back to what he's familiar with when he doesn't totally understand what Jesus is up to. Or think about it this way, the Gospels don't really present the disciples as following Jesus as if he's a complete stranger. They knew Jesus well when he called them. Or if you like, we could title this whole entire scene in Luke 5 this way, this is Jesus' official call. This is Jesus' official call to Peter and his fellow disciple fishermen to full-time following, to full-time ministry. By the way, this presents kind of a side lens or applicational lens that we could focus on here. Let this story be a warning and a comfort to anyone who is thinking about full-time future ministry, any aspiring seminarians in this room. Let this story be a warning and a comfort. But also, let this story be a warning and a comfort to any one of Jesus' disciples who want to seek Him and serve Him with their life. This is how Jesus interacts with His disciples. But this brings us to the next part in our story. We see Jesus in the crowd, but next part is... The Jesus out of his depth, as I like to call it. The Jesus out of his depth. Verse 4 continues. 
And when he, that is Jesus, had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. Now there's two commands here. The first one, put out into the deep. In the original, this is a command given to a singular uh, individual. It's probably directed right to Peter himself because he was the, the, the driver of the boat. So steer your boat out into the deep water. So we can conclude one thing from this. Jesus wasn't calling them to do some shallow water fishing. He was calling them to do deep water fishing. And then the next command, let down your nets. This is a command not given to a singular figure, but to a group of people. So now Jesus is directing all of um, Peter and the, the fellow uh, fishermen there, maybe James and John. It's not clear exactly to me at this part point. And he directs them all to let down the nets because deep water fishing is a big enterprise. It requires a lot of manpower. Peter's not going out there with a rod and a pole. Peter's not going out there with one of these tiny little spinner nets. He is going out there with a crew of fishermen. And they're going to let down their nets. These were not small nets. These were deep water nets. This is a very different word than the word that's used in Matthew 4 or Mark 1. These were large enough to cover a great area under water. Matter of fact, this is probably a drag net net that's meant to be pulled by one or two boats. And you'd kind of lay out the net all across the shoreline, and then you'd either pull them into the boat or you'd pull them into the shore. And by the way, they also brought everything in with them. Big fish, little fish, weeds, rocks, sticks. They brought everything in with them. This is probably why the disciples were washing their nets. They had to clean their nets because all night they'd been dragging this thing into the shore and all they had caught were weeds. Kind of like my fishing stories, actually. This was a huge operation. And notice what happens next. What follows is the first word we hear from Peter in all of Luke's gospel. Oh, this will be good. This will be good. He is the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth, as John MacArthur likes to describe him. You learn a lot from him from his first word. It is a wonderful mix of foot and faith. Right? Verse 5, he says, Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. I've appreciated Vody Bauckham, especially this last year. I've appreciated his clarity of thought and his wisdom. He's also got this funny side to him. Sometimes he does this humorous bit and he talks about himself in, in, this, in this character that he has created saying, the bad Vody. The bad Vody comes out when he feels like just destroying someone's arguments because they're saying something stupid and he has to hold back the bad Vody from coming out and just unleashing on these people. And Vody Bauckham is not a comedian, but it's a really funny piece about the bad Vody coming out and things like that. But I can't help but wondering here in our story, what would happen if the bad Simon came out, right? We kind of see part of it start to flash a little bit, but maybe, maybe he could have said some more had the bad Simon come out here a little bit. This is what I envision he could have said. Listen, Jesus, I know you're new around here and all. And don't get me wrong, I think you're a swell preacher and everything. 
I'm, I'm actually very thankful for what you did for my mother-in-law. It's great. Ha- happy mother-in-law is a happy me. But you're kind of out of your depth here on this one. I hate, I hate to say it. Really? 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 Remember, you're not the fisherman here. You're the carpenter. I can see why you'd think that there'd be more fish out there in the deep water. That makes a lot of sense, I suppose, in your like your 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 landlocked legged mind. I can understand that, but that's not actually how it works. Those there are fish out there, but they're so deep in the water that our nets, even as big as they are, they, they can't catch them. So I, I appreciate your thought. I appreciate how you're thinking about this, but actually, you just have no idea how this is supposed to work. Actually, we, we've been out there all night. We've been throwing this net out all night, and we have gotten nothing, and we are very tired. And don't take me the wrong way or anything, but we're kind of all fished out. We're kind of worn out. All of these fish out here, I don't know what they're doing. Maybe they took like a vacation some other side of the lake, but they're not out there. Bottom line is, we're tired. The fish are dead. We don't want to go out. You can tell. Peter almost says that, right? Master, we've toiled all night and we've taken nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets something changes in peter halfway through halfway through five at your word i will let down the nets how about you does jesus ever call you to do something strange and seemingly foolish in your life seems fruitless seems pointless you think maybe i should just give up Why do I bother? Why do I bother teaching this Sunday school class any longer? They're four-year-olds. They don't listen. Why do I bother praying for that wayward child? He's gone. Why do I bother talking to those guys on the night shift? They don't listen. They don't care. Why do I even try to discipline this young child? It's not going to make a difference. They're going to do the same thing tomorrow. Hopefully in the middle of those statements and thoughts that we have in our head, we may remember who is calling us to faithfulness in those moments. And pardon me if I wax a little cheesy here, but in those moments... Could you put down your nets of prayer, of faithfulness, of diligence, of speaking gospel truth yet again one more time? Remember who is calling you to live by faith. Remember who your Lord is and say, I can put down my nets one more time. But, Let's go back to the story. Meanwhile, out in the boat, uh, things are about to get really interesting. Part three. Jesus, the once out of his depth, is suddenly now part three. Jesus, out of your league. Enjoy this scene of utter chaos and pandemonium with me while we read this. Verse six. 
And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so that they began to sink. A few notes. What was a fruitless night of casting net after net after net took Jesus only one try. I love the quote by John MacArthur at this point. He says this, I don't really like fishing. I don't really go for that. I like catching. I want to find some catchers. I like fishing with catchermen. That's a whole lot more fun. First try. Notice also the colossal size of this catch. Their nets begin to break Two boats begin to sink. Remember, these are probably fairly large boats. I mean, possibly they're the same kind of boat that Jesus and his disciples were able to all fit in at other points. Deep water fishing also, like I said before, took a considerable crew, so there's probably a lot of men, so this was a lot of boat. And remember, these were probably very big nets. You needed a a lot of men to pull these nets in and to drag these nets out. Peter isn't tossing in one of those dinky little circular nets that he's tossing in in Matthew 4. This is a drag net. Some people say this was about 100 feet long. Other people are like a quarter mile long. I don't know, it sounds sarcastic, but that just tells me that this thing is huge. And it is made to be strong. It is made to carry a lot. It is made to handle a lot of fish because it is so big. And this thing is breaking. What do you think that scene was like? I can imagine what that scene was like. I'm thinking a lot of laughter, a lot of yelling, a lot of shouting like lunatics for their partners on the shore to come out here as fast as they can. But it's interesting, isn't it? It's interesting that Luke stops describing the scene right here. Matter of fact, you could say it all fades to white. And Luke leaves Peter all alone before Jesus in the boat. It's also interesting what Peter doesn't do here. We don't see that bad Simon come out again. As R.C. Sproul would say, he doesn't say, listen, Jesus, you and me, once a week. Just come out once a week. No, once a month. I'll give you 75% of the business. No, I'll give you 90% of the business. Just come out once a month. Do this. You know, wave your little thing. Show us where to put the net, and, and we'll be good. He doesn't even say that at all. Peter doesn't respond like the crowds do at all, in matter of fact. This is a far cry for Peter from trying to keep Jesus close. Matter of fact, we're going to see this. How does Peter respond? Exactly the opposite. Verse 8, But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so also were James and John, son of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, 
What does Peter do? Having seen the majestic glory of Jesus in this small way in his life, what does he do? He says this. He doesn't say, hey Jesus, stay close. He says, Jesus, get far away. Depart from me. Leave. Leave me alone. I beg you. This calls to mind the frightful response of the demons whenever they get near Jesus, right? And remember that scene in Revelation in 6.16 when the Lamb of God is pouring down His wrath on the world and, and it's known to the world that it's a supernatural judgment and it's ironically known to the world that this is the Lamb doing this. The Lamb what do the kings and the great ones and everyone, rich, slave, and free, what do they all do? They don't cry for mercy. They say, hide us. They run to the mountains and try to hide from the wrath of the Lamb because they are terrified. Matter of fact, in Isaiah 6-5, a very appropriate parallel passage to our current one. Isaiah, when he sees the Lord sitting on his throne, what does he say? He says, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. What causes this response? What is this response? This intense fear. This intense fear is what captures the hearts of sinners when they see their holy God before them. They say, I don't belong here. Please stay away. Peter is, you could say, the first sinner in Luke's Gospel. And Jesus' interaction with this sinner is a model of all the sinners who will follow, including you. But what, what is it in particular that causes this fear? That causes Peter to say these things and respond this way? Consider these thoughts. It's a realization that he was in the presence of divine omniscience. It's a realization that he is with somebody that knows everything. Jesus knew where the fish were. He could see all the fish in the lake all at the same time. He knew right where to drop the nets. He knew every single cranny and corner of the bottom of this lake. He could see it all. Proverbs 15.3 says there is a certain fear when we behold our God, because the eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. In Psalm 39, there is a fear. Uh, Psalm 139, there is a fear in knowing you are known. Right? Psalm 139, verse 1, O Lord, You have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with all of my ways even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, You know it altogether. Verse 7, Where shall I go from Your Spirit? Or where shall I flee from Your presence? If I ascend to heaven, You are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, You are there. 
Verse 11, if I say, surely the darkness shall cover me, the light about me be night, even the darkness is not dark to you. The night is bright as the day, for darkness is as light with you. That's a comfort, but that's also a terror. There is no place I can go that you do not see. There is no darkness that you cannot penetrate with your eyes. And Peter's thinking, And you're thinking, and I'm thinking when we read this story, if he can see everything under this water, he can see everything inside of me. Every nook and cranny, how much more can he see me? But this wasn't the only thing, I think, that terrified Peter. It wasn't just that Jesus knew where the fish were. I don't think had Peter gone out there on his own without Jesus' command and thrown down his nets, he would have caught this amount of fish. Consider this also in Peter's fear. It's a realization that he was in the presence of divine omnipotence. It was also that Jesus could command such a thing to occur. Jesus has spent His life trying to lure and trap and catch fish. And it was hard work. And Peter had just come off of a very discouraging night. But this Jesus, this Jesus, He could do what He wanted to do when He wanted to do it. First try. Peter's thinking, and you're thinking, and I'm thinking, right? He can send hundreds of thousands of fish into my net whenever he wants in an instant. If he can do what he wants, when he wants, what will he do with his perfect knowledge of me and every nook and cranny of my life that he can see? Or simply, it's a simple realization that he is in the presence of God. It was imperfect, for sure, and it needed to grow and it would grow. It was only the beginning of knowledge, but notice, even in the beginning of the fear of the Lord was great, terrifying awareness. Look at the name he uses. Lord, depart from me, O Lord, The word he uses is different in verse 5. He calls Jesus master, which is a common term of a disciple that they use for their teacher or their master. But Lord is a little bit different. It's it's, It's much different. It carries a stronger weight. Matter of fact, Luke, up to this point, has used this word Lord 33 times in his gospel, and every single time it is referred to the Lord God. I'm convinced that Peter realized at this moment that he was standing before God. And that brought terror. And consider this also. It wasn't just a realization that he was in the presence of God. It was a realization of his own sinfulness. You know that sudden feeling. When you realize that somebody knows something that you did 
Suddenly you're full of guilt, hot sweat, fearful anxiety comes upon you. But this isn't just a guilty conscience about something he has done. This is a recognition of his status and his condition as a sinner. As Isaiah 6, 5 said, I am lost because I have unclean lips. This, this is and will be the recognition of every human. Everybody will someday, either now or at the judgment seat of God, realize, like it says in Psalm 51, 5, that I am sinful. I am born sinful. I have been estranged from the womb, as it says in Psalm 58, verse 3. I am in a constant state. I have constantly fallen short of the glory of God, and I deserve judgment. As Hebrews 10, 31 would tell us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God, because you realize who he is but you also realize who you are and it causes you to beg depart from me but this is not all think about this remember we probably shouldn't take this story as peter's conversion experience he already was a follower matthew 4 he already was a close acquaintance with Jesus. Luke 4.38 He had Jesus at his house. Up to this point, he probably considered Jesus a friend. And more significantly, he probably considered Jesus to consider him a friend. Consider this as an application. You might, yes you, Christian you, might very well still be looking at a future situation in which God's holiness is more displayed and your sinfulness is brought more to the surface. You may be looking at a future situation in which your sinfulness and unworthiness is more painfully and fully exposed than ever before and you might be looking at this very instance to happen in a place where you feel most confident in your life. Peter was in his comfort zone. He was on his home turf. But that's not all. Think also on this as one of my favorites. One of my favorite uh, commentators, Dale Ralph Davis, would say in his excellent and highly readable commentary on Luke, this is a frightful and acute awareness of his sinfulness and unworthiness. And it has many parallels, of course, to Isaiah's vision. I also think Isaiah is a post-conversion, so to speak, incident. But notice there's some huge uh, dissimilarities in these two accounts as well. Peter's fright is not coming because he is hearing peals of thunder or flashes of lightning. He is not seeing the Lord on his throne in all of his holiness. What is causing Peter all of this fear? It is a glimpse of the kindness and the goodness and the generosity of Jesus. This was just Jesus giving Peter a friendly tip. Thanks for letting me use your boat for a pulpit, Peter. Here you go. This is often the way God is. He's a generous tipper to those who use their resources to serve and further the ministry of the Word, right? 
And Jesus is being generous. What's the application here? I would say this. Go home. Study the Gospel. Think about the Gospel for as long as you can until you shake. Because it is terrifying to behold how good and how wonderful our God is in Christ. This is Jesus out of your league. But all this is not without a purpose. Jesus has an aim in humbling Peter. And he has an aim in humbling you too. Consider the final part. The Jesus with his catch. Here are the disciples. In their boat. Sinking. Pile of fish. But notice. The fishermen have become the fish. Jesus has caught them. They have his hooks in them. Notice here the words that Jesus speaks to these trembling disciples. These words and actions of Jesus are a wonderful surprise to any sinner who reads. Verse 10, And Jesus said to Simon, Do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to land, they left everything and followed him. Do not be afraid. Yes, you are correct. You do not belong here. Yes, you are correct. I do not belong here. Yes, you are correct. You should flee with fear and trembling, but do not fear. Remember. Remember this. I got in your boat first. I came here and stood on this shore in full knowledge of what I was going to do. And I came here and stood on this shore in full knowledge of you and who you are, every nook and cranny of you. And I got in your boat. I have set my love on you. I have chosen you to be my disciple. You are mine, and you will see greater things than this. Come and see. Do not fear. And the second part, from now on, you will be catching men. From now on, there's a sense of finality here, isn't there? Note also, they, they left everything. This is, this is much stronger than what happens in, in Matthew, actually. And, and imagine that. They, they left, apparently, the pile of fish as well. Sometimes it seems like you might have to leave a whole lot to follow Jesus, right? Sometimes. But notice, what is lost is not in focus here. When you follow Christ, it is like this. When you, when you follow Him, even through hard situations of life, you know that whatever is ahead, if He's there with you, it'll be better than anything you leave behind, even a pile of fish. 
And isn't this also encouraging? Jesus can see all who I am and say, yes, I know. But I can still use you. Remember, I can do whatever I want to do whenever I want to do it. I have unlimited resources, and I want you to join me. This is wonderful, isn't it? The greatest fisherman makes you a partner in his fishing business. I'm going to make you fishers of men, and I can do whatever I want when I want to do it. All you have to do is be faithful and follow me. I think that leaves enough breadcrumbs for applications and profitable thoughts for you. But before I leave you, let me just throw down three thoughts to help you really nail down where I want you to go with this passage. And it's this. What what does it mean to be Jesus' disciple? A regular Joe, a regular disciple. Not... Jesus' convert, but what does it mean to be Jesus' disciple? Number one, it means you are hooked. Right? Jesus has invaded your life, and you must follow Him. He knows you perfectly and fully, and yet He has put His hooks in your mouth, and you must follow Him. It means also this. It means that Jesus, the greatest fisher of man there is, has made you a partner in His fishing business. He does what He wants when He wants to do it. All He asks of you is to let down your nets faithfully. Now that's poetic language. All He wants you to do is continue to live boldly, lovingly, winsomely, speaking the gospel persuasively to anybody in your circles. You never know. You never know what the lake will bring today. And lastly, it means you live each day in the constant hazard of having His glory and His goodness and your unworthiness exposed. Call it a occupational hazard, if you will. You obey each day, as it says in Philippians 2, 13, 14, in fear and trembling. Jesus does this because he wants none of his disciples to boast in his presence but get low and worship. And He has a way of humbling His own for His glory and your good. Let's pray. Father in heaven, what a tremendous account that leaves us shaking. But I pray it would also leave us earnest to be faithful with the little areas of life that You have given us to lead. Thank you for getting in our boat. Thank you for choosing us in your love and in your grace. And thank you for calling us and bidding us to follow you and become catchers of men as well. Pray all of this in your son's name.